please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to James chapter 1. As we are beginning a new series of Sunday morning, or series rather, of Sunday morning scripture studies from the epistle of James. And we're reading from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And you'll find it on page 1880 of the church Bible. For those watching at home, whenever we stand to sing here and the words come up on the screen, please sing along. Whenever we pause and pray, please engage with us at that level as well. And whenever we open up the scriptures, it would be handy for you to have your Bible open at home, perhaps a notepad, something to write with, as we here in the sanctuary engage with the Word of God, seek to learn from it, and then live out those principles in the course of the week. James chapter 1. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all he does. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading. From his holy word. Over the summer months, when I was off on vacation, a couple of weeks ago, Miss Ruth and I visited Colorado. And while we were out there, we spent a couple of days on a ranch. And I have to say, it was one of the best vacations I've ever had, as I learned to be a cowboy for a few days, and I came back spitting and chewing and immerse myself in the whole western lifestyle and here I am looking over the herd on I think that was about yeah a week past yesterday that was my final ride and I was uh, looking over the herd to make sure everything was in good order and not only did we enjoy a little riding we also tried line dancing now I have to tell you I am not the man with the moves but I am married to someone who knows what to do when it comes to Western line dancing. And there she is in all of her glory. And we had a wonderful time together. Now, during those days on the ranch, there was also the possibility of a guest rodeo. And so I suggested to the lovely Miss Ruth that I've always wanted to try a little bull riding. And she immediately said... No. And I said, well, I I promise I won't stay on too long. No. I promise I won't hurt the bull. No. And so that pretty much finished the conversation, except, to cut a long story short, I learned three things about bull riding. Number one, don't turn your back on the bull. Number two, don't underestimate the bull. And when you settle down and cinch up, ready to ride, hope for eight when they open the gate. And so I attempted a little bull riding, and in fact, and I have to say this in all humility, I was given an award at the end of the week for the best bull riding guest. And here I am. Uh, And I thoroughly enjoyed uh, bull riding. 
Now the question is, Richard, why on earth are you showing us your holiday snaps on a Sunday morning when we've come to James? Well, simply this reason. As James begins to write his epistle, and he carefully constructs his epistle, on Sunday mornings what we will be asking is several things. Number one, who was he writing to? Number two, why was he writing to these particular people at that particular time? And thirdly, when he is writing, what does he mean? Because when I was describing my antics bull riding, I suspect you had another image in your mind before the final picture. And so the question is, when someone is saying something, what is in their mind? What does it mean? And so when James carefully constructs and puts structure to his writings, what is he telling us? And our fourth point is, how do we apply it to ourselves in a 21st century setting? So all of that we will be looking at under the auspices of studying the epistle from James. And this series is entitled, as you know, Designed for Growth. And one of the things James focuses on again and again and again is maturing his readers in their faith, watching them grow, and how do we grow closer to Christ as a result of engaging with the scriptures. So all of that we're going to be touching on over the next few weeks. And this morning we come to chapter 1, verse 1. And James begins in a manner that is typical of the day. He begins with his own name, and then he tells us who he's writing to. And it's fairly straightforward. In fact, some would say that it's the standard greeting of the day. This would be typical of letters you would find in antiquity. And in fact, the phrase, it's perfectly straightforward, yet powerfully significant, is absolutely true of these opening words. But that phrase, perfectly straightforward, powerfully significant, in many ways sums up the entire epistle. Because as we begin to further immerse ourselves in the weeks to come, you're going to grasp what James is actually writing and see it as perfectly straightforward. But it becomes powerfully significant as we open up heart and mind and soul and seek to apply those lessons and live them out day by day. And so you're going to hear that refrain, perfectly straightforward, powerfully significant come up in our studies throughout the next couple of weeks. The epistle of James is one that is, falls into the category of what New Testament scholars call general epistles. And these are epistles not written to an individual. So think of Philemon and Titus, First and Second Timothy. They are written to particular individuals. Then on the other hand, you have the epistles to First and Second Corinthians, then you have the epistle, epistle to the Ephesians, or the Philippians, First and Second Thessalonians. They are written to a particular congregation in a particular context. But James, Hebrews, several others of New Testament epistles are general epistles, not written to a particular congregation, not written to a particular person, but are equally applicable for all congregations. And so that's where, who, whom James is writing to. So as we come to it this morning, I'm going to take a few minutes by way of introduction and to give you a bit of an update on 
where James is, what he's engaging with. And I would also have to say this about James. We can absolutely say, perfectly straightforward and powerfully significant, because it is one of the hardest-hitting, most practical epistles to be found anywhere in Scripture. And that sense of (sighs) hitting practically is very real when it comes to James. It's going to touch your heart and mind and soul, as we said moments ago. Now, please let me add one more word by way of introduction before we come to the passage itself. It may well be you're here this morning and you're saying, Richard, I'm glad that summer is over. Children, grandchildren are back to school. There's, we're getting back to a normal schedule in my house, looking forward to football season and looking forward to the fall and all that that brings. Because the summer has been so much busier than I anticipated. And Richard, if I was frank with you, it's become so busy that I've not really had much time to pause and pray and open up the scriptures. In fact, I'm probably out of the habit. And it's been some time, maybe a couple of months, since I have taken the time, sat down in a comfortable chair, opened up the scriptures, prayed for family and friends, myself, sought to read a passage of scripture, and apply it to my life. In fact, Richard, it's so bad, and I hate to admit this, it's so bad that I've kind of got out of the habit. And between us, I'm not quite sure where to begin. So may I suggest this? May I suggest that tomorrow morning, or some point tomorrow, that you intentionally carve out some time to open up the scriptures and get back into that daily routine and habit of personal devotion. And I would also suggest this. Open up at James chapter 1, verse 1. Read the passage we've just read. And then begin to apply it to your life for the rest of this week. And then next Sunday morning, when we come to the next section in James, use that section for the following week. And then the third Monday, it's same again. And get back into that pattern of regularly opening up and studying the scriptures together. And I will be fascinated to see what God does when an entire congregation are reading and studying and seeking to apply God's word from the same passage week by week by week. So let me encourage you, if your devotional life has not been where it needs to be, deep breath, start again tomorrow, and let's make James the highlight of our fall season. So having said all of that, James 1, verse 1. Most of you are experienced enough to know that down through the centuries, that Christian churches and museums across the world have fragments of New Testament epistles. And if we had nothing else of the epistle of James other than the first few words of his opening greetings, we would know several things. We would know this is a remarkable man. And what he's writing is a remarkable document. And we'd know it for this reason. When James begins, he begins, and you'll see it in the text with you, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let me pause right there. Why is that remarkable? Moments ago we said it was typical of greetings in antiquity. So why on earth is it remarkable? It's remarkable for this reason. When James describes himself, he says, James, a servant of God. Now that's remarkable because James has chosen the most self-effacing description he possibly can. A servant. A servant was also considered a slave. And the word used, in fact, is slave. And a slave was usually considered to be a person owned by another, without rights. And like any form of personal property to be used and disposed of in whatever way an owner may wish. And that is how James is describing himself. He uses the word doulos, which means slave. And so the question is, why does James use James, a servant, a slave of God? There were multiple titles he could have used. In Acts chapter 21, and we're not quite there in our most recent studies of Acts, the Apostle Paul completes his first missionary journey. He goes back to Jerusalem to tell the church what he's been doing. And we read these words. Paul and the rest of us went to see James. And all the elders were present. So what does that tell us? It tells us that James, in all likelihood, had a significant position in the early church. In addition to that, we also find in Galatians 2.19, this is the first epistle from the Apostle Paul. He's describing his interaction with James and he writes, James, Peter and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Look at it again. James, Peter, and John. Here is James mentioned up there along with Simon Peter and John, the youngest of the disciples, who wrote the fourth gospel. Reputed to be pillars. And so James could rightly have said, James, a leader of the church in Jerusalem. James, a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. But he chooses, chooses not to say that. And in fact, he could also have said this in Galatians 1.19, earlier in the epistle to Galatians, Paul again writing says this, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I think of that. I saw none of the other apostles. Now the language is a bit ambiguous, and so can we say definitively that James held apostolic office? No, we can't say with 100% certainty, but it was pretty close. I saw none of the other apostles, only James. And so he could have written with some measure of integrity, he could have written James, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he chooses James, a servant. And notice the other part of the verse. James, the Lord's brother. Think of that. Born from the same womb as Jesus. Raised in the same house as Jesus. Possibly played tag with him in the back garden or hide and seek. 
And he doesn't say James, the Lord's brother. He simply says, James, a servant, James, a slave. And that tells us some remarkable things about James. It tells us that in describing himself, that he chose the most self-effacing, insignificant language to describe himself. And if you've ever come across great men and women of God, and you've been around them to any extent, what you will discover is this. They think of themselves as utterly insignificant. That's James. And so there's a humility there that is absolutely remarkable. Now having said all of that, James having settled on servant, we recognize immediately Perfectly straightforward, yet powerfully significant. He's not looking for adulation. He's not looking for applause. James, a servant. And then he goes on to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Now, who are the twelve tribes scattered among the nations? Well, a number of New Testament scholars would tell us this, that persecution had broke out against the church in Jerusalem by the time James is writing, and folks would have scattered, in other words, left Jerusalem, some through economic reasons, some through political reasons, others through persecution. And they had left Jerusalem heading north towards Antioch or south and east towards Egypt, wherever they were scattered, and James is writing to consider to encourage them. As we come to verse 2, notice what he says. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind. Now let's pause right there. Notice how he refers to them. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Eighteen different occasions. James refers to his readers as my brothers. Adelphos. Is the word. And Adelphos means, as I mentioned earlier, literally from the same womb. Now imagine that. Imagine you have had a tough six or eight months, you've had to leave your home in Jerusalem behind, you've moved to a new city, a new area, village, town. You've settled in with your family. You left because of financial, economic, political pressures, whatever the reason. And here is James writing to you. Care for you. I'm praying for you. I'm there for you. I want to encourage and equip you to live out your faith day by day. Now that's the kind of letter I think most of us would be thrilled and delighted to receive, so much so that we might print it and frame it and put it on our wall. James, the Lord's brother. James, senior leader in the church in Jerusalem. James, who are friends of Peter and John, pillar of the church, is writing to me. That's a thought, isn't it? Back in November 2009, and I think I told you this at the time, so please uh, forgive me if this is redundant. A letter arrived here at the church offices. It had my name on it. And on the front it said, U.S. House of Representatives, Washington, D.C., 
public document official business. And it was addressed Bishop Richard Gibbons. Now, I was not one to miss that opportunity, so I immediately showed it to all the staff, and I faxed it and uh, scanned it and sent it home to my mother, who was thinking, he's been in the United States just about two years now, and they've made him a bishop. She was very pleased that day, quite honestly. And so when I mentioned it to you the following Sunday, several of you said, okay, now that the federal government recognize you as a bishop, uh, how should we, what should we call you? How should we address you? What is the protocol? Well, the protocol in ecclesiastical circles is this. You never refer to an individual simply as bishop. It's always Bishop Thompson, Bishop Smith, Bishop Jones. And so I would be Bishop Gibbons. Now, of course, I'm not going to stand on ceremony, and you know me well enough to to know that, so I'm never going to insist on Bishop Gibbons or Your Excellency, so please don't. And so when you approach me in the corridor, I think Your Grace will be sufficient. Please don't go beyond that. that. That will be just fine. Now, in the midst of all of my silliness, what is going on here? Of all the things James could have called himself, he chooses servant. And then he goes on to say, consider it pure joy, my brothers. This anonymous group of people, he's trying to pull them in and encourage them, warm their hearts to say, we are one in the same, born again by the Spirit of God. Hence he calls them brothers. And then James is, if anyone in the New Testament is this, it's James. He is a great realist. Remember we said at the beginning, the epistle of James is practical, it's hard-hitting, it's extremely challenging, and right here he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, at first glance, you are saying to yourself, okay, Richard, hold on, this doesn't seem so much a paradox as an absurdity. Richard, do you honestly want to stand there this morning and tell me that because I'm going through some tough and difficult, challenging days, that I should consider it pure joy? Really? Is that what you're telling me? Are you telling me you simply grin and bear it, praise the Lord anyway, and just get on with it? No. And James is not seeking to do that either. What James is seeking to do is this. He's saying, when you are in the midst of tough days, facing, as he says, trials of many kinds, please take a step back and ask yourself, what is God doing in the middle of all of this? And that's where he's leading them. And he uses several words here when he says, whenever you face trials of many kinds, and he repeats that in verse 12, but also in verse 13, he talks about when tempted. And there's a world of a difference between trials and temptations. Trials are almost like testing. And when God tests us, it's to make us stronger. It's to enable us to stand. It's to enable us to mature and grow in our faith. So when testing and trials come, that's what God is looking for. But over here, when temptations come, Satan is right there, 
bringing temptation in order to make us fail and ultimately fall. Very different. Satan is interested in failure and falling. God is interested in growth and maturing. Look at the passage again. And that's why he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And in fact, in Romans, we read, Perseverance develops character. Character develops hope. And that's the gospel right at the center, shaping and fashioning our lives. And so when James says, whenever you find yourself going through trials and testing, step back for a moment. Don't only focus on the challenges before you, but focus on who you are becoming. And how often on a Sunday morning have we said that? That God is not so much focused on the challenge, we are, but he is focused on you. How are you responding? How are you growing? How is he refining you and calling you and shaping you into be the man or woman he is calling you to be? That's the point James is making. And notice what else he says. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, if you face trials... No, whenever you face trials. Because we both know this, that when you are determined to grow in your faith, when you take the word of God seriously, when you seek to live out moral and spiritual principles in your life, you will face trials. You will face testing. Many years ago, almost more than 30 years ago now, I worked in a factory very part-time for six weeks. I was a contracting electrician at the time, and the company was Rolls-Royce, and they were developing jet engines. And I worked in an area called the test beds. And so uh, we were rewiring it, the company I was working with. And once the engines were ready, they would turn them on and let them run for 30, 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70 hours, testing them again and again and again and again, looking for consistency and inconsistency, looking for perseverance. Can these engines run for a long time? That was the point, the test beds. Likewise with us, when God allows trials and testing, he's looking for maturity. He's looking for character. He's looking for the ability to persevere, dig deep, keep going. Not to focus on what's taking place, but to focus on his love and grace and how you're responding to it. Because he knows that here is an opportunity to show the power of God at work. That's why James says, consider it pure joy whenever trials come, because you will be stronger, better, more mature as a result. The Apostle Paul, one of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He is faithful. You will not be tempted. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 
later in James, and we're going to see this when we get into chapter 4, James says almost in an identical manner the same thing. He says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. My problem is I don't want to submit myself to God. I want to think I can handle it, thank you. I want to think that I know more about the challenging I'm facing than anyone else. And so I end up telling God, if only he would do this and this and this and this. It would be so much easier. And time and again, he shakes his head and says, Richard, you can trust me in the midst of this. I've got it. I've got it. No temptation has seized you except which is common to man. And I would have to tell you, so many people when they come to visit me will say, Richard, does anyone else ever go through this? The answer is yes. And what's more important is this. That Hebrews, the epistle immediately before James tells us this. That Christ himself was tempted in every way such as we are, morally, psychologically, spiritually. There were times when Jesus was tempted to show off in front of a crowd, but he refused. At the moment of his most intense challenge, when he was hanging on the cross, what did the people there call to him? Come on down if you truly are the Son of God. The last thing they needed was a crucified Savior. But that was God's plan. Tempted in every way such as we are moral, socially, physically, materially, mentally, spiritually, and yet was without sin. When temptation comes, stand fast, which is exactly what James is telling us. Perseverance, consistency, matter. And as we move towards the end, what do we discover from James? Whenever you face trials of many kind, not if you face, but whenever you face, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance Faithfulness, consistency matters. God is not looking for Christians who stagger through life in a series of spiritual starts and fits and then what? Steps back and sinks into defeat and dullness and decay. He's looking for the very opposite. He's encouraging them. What does he say? So that you may be, we see it in verse 4, mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perfectly straightforward, yet powerfully significant. And so this week, as you open up James again, as you take time to read it slowly, remembering he chose the word Servant, remembering he's writing to others who were anonymous to him, reminding them that they are part of the family of God and equipping them by saying, whenever you go through trials and testing, it's not the same as temptation, but trials and testings are sent by God to strengthen you, equip you, mature you, develop your character, to show consistency and perseverance. Perfectly straightforward, yet powerfully significant. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable passage of Scripture. 
Thank you for the challenge it brings into our lives. Help us please, in the week that lies ahead, to live out our faith in the light of all that James would teach us. Father, we know that trials and testing and temptations do come our way. May we see them as opportunities for growth, maturity. Father, help us please this week, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.